Good morning, Bridgeway. Hi there. Happy Father's Day to all the dads in the house. I hope that video there reflected uh, just our gratitude for you and what you do. And we are very thankful you and your family chose to be here on this Father's Day weekend here at Bridgeway for worship. Uh, my name is Ryan Haynes, and I'm the Bridgeway Young Adults Pastor here. So I get the privilege of uh, working with our 18 to 30-year-old crowd and helping ignite in them a passion for following Jesus. So if you fall in that category, if you're uh, you know, a single young professional, college person, then we'd love to have you come on Tuesday nights to join us. Um, but uh, this morning we have our work cut out for us. And so we are in part 70 of our Being Jesus series. I bet you didn't know when we started out that there would be a part 70 for our Being Jesus series. And so if you've been here since the beginning, uh, it's been a beautiful journey through the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, a blended Gospel study of the life of Jesus. And we have finally made it to the last week of Jesus' life. And uh, as, as we're in part 70 today, the showdown in the temple, we have uh, a pretty uh, amazing passage here. As we look at uh, chronologically this unfolding of Jesus' last week of ministry, and a showdown he has, like old school Western style, with the religious leaders in the temple grounds. And what's at stake is authority. And authority is something that we can all relate with. Authority is something that we seek after in life. Authority is something that we encounter every single day. And if you don't believe me, I guarantee that over the course of this last month, at some point in time, you have had a showdown of some type in your life when it comes to authority. Uh, in our neighborhood, uh, there's a lot of uh, energy around the idea of watering your grass right now. I know you guys have, uh, have a lawn like mine that's becoming slowly more and more the color of potato chips. And so uh, it's a drought here in California. And, uh, and so uh, you might have had an encounter with a neighbor. And it might have gone something like this. Hey, uh, so about your sprinklers coming on five times this week. State regulations now have stated in the region of blah, blah, blah. You know, two times a week. You know, when someone comes and knocks on your door to tell you that your garbage can has been sitting out too long or your side gate is squeaking, it's not a great feeling. It's like, who are you to come into my yard and tell me how to run things, right? Or maybe, you know, maybe it was someone who came up to you and it's a, a fellow parent, you know, school's out for summer, but the thing that's on your mind is that the audacity that person had to come up and tell you that your kid was misbehaving in class or in the playground and that your Johnny hit Billy and your son Johnny, he's a real ingrate. You're like, whoa, hold on a second. What gives you the right to question my parenting or, or what's going on in my house? Who do you think you are? Or maybe this is the worst and you go into a place... I hit Starbucks this morning on the way in because, you know, it's Father's Day and I don't have kids yet, but I might as well treat myself. And so I, uh, that's how I told my wife anyway. And so, uh, so it's, it's, you know, you go in, you're expecting this experience, right? You go to that restaurant or you're there to get customer service and all of a sudden you realize the person on the other side of the counter, the person with the pen in hand, they're not there to brighten your day. <laughs> in fact, they're there uh, and they think you are an inconvenience. And so you get this feeling sometimes, right? Who are they to give me a massive dose of attitude when I am a patron in their store, when I'm here to give them my money in exchange for some service, you know? And we're attempting to brighten their day, but there's nothing that can turn that frown upside down. And when we, when we have these, these struggles of authority, they, they make us realize that there's this thing inside of us. There's this battle going on for who's in charge, who calls the shots, and in our world, it's very easy for us to put ourselves in the place of CEO. I mean, we are king and supreme authority in our own lives, and we expect the world uh, to, to bend to our wishes. Facebook is a beautiful tool for this, isn't it? I mean, how many times is a Facebook post just basically the extroverted thinking of people like you and me 
who are sitting on our tiny little thrones and telling the world how it ought to run and what we're not happy about when it comes to what we're engaging with in the world around us. And, and when people see it as their job and their duty to give instructions to the world on how it ought to run, we realize, man, we have an authority issue here. Because do we have the right to say to the world around us, to the other people in our lives, uh, th- this is how I think things should go, so do that. And the very definition of authority reveals that, that there is an inherent uh, perspective, there's, there's a mindset there, and that beauty is in the eye of the beholder, and authority in our lives is often in the eye of the beholder. The definition of authority that we find uh, in, in just the, de- the dictionary definition is this, authority is the power or the right to give orders. Amen? We like that, don't we? The authority to give orders. That's a good feeling. If you had, if you're entrusted with the authority to call the shots, it's the power to make decisions, the power to enforce obedience. And that, that is, that is in and of itself our quest, our pursuit. And it's something that when we bump up against an authority that's contrary to us, when you bump up against an authority that is correcting you or guiding you uh, in a way that's contrary to your path, it doesn't feel very good. As a kid, this is Father's Day weekend, right? As a kid, you know, we get used to that because one of the things my mom would do when we would get out of line is my mom would say these few little words, just wait till your father gets home. (laughs) That is a play for authority, right? I mean, my mom did not need any extra help around the house with authority, okay? My mom did a good job, but, but when she said, wait, let's see what your dad has to say about that when he gets home, every kid shivers when that happens right oh don't tell dad you know like this is not what i want to happen because dad spanks harder than mom i mean that's for starters in our house that was how it was you know and secondarily sometimes after dad would spank us he would also cry (laughs) and he'd do it because he because he loves us so much and this would break my heart worse than the spanking son i love you i don't want you to do this anymore you know it's like it hurts me more than it hurts you and i believed him because i didn't want to do that anymore because i don't want to break my dad's heart my dad's watching this morning uh from st louis so happy father's day dad thank you for the spankings and for the love and so uh yeah right hey get the round of applause yeah he is a great dad but but sometimes you wish as a kid that you had that authority card to play too right i mean what does a kid get to do in that situation oh yeah well let's see what the president has to say about it, you know, like little seven-year-old me. We'll see what Ronald Reagan has to say, mom, okay? I'm going to get the rotary phone out and I'm going to dial him up and I'm going to call some authority of my own because it feels good when you can make a play for authority. I mean, when you're not getting your, your way in, in business, what do you say? Can I speak to your supervisor? You know, even some, some of us have the audacity, you know, if you get pulled over for breaking the law, uh, I'm going to need your badge number. We'll see what your commanding officer has to say about this. Really? <laughs> Because we, we love to be able to change the reality of our situation by appealing to a higher authority. And today what Jesus is encountering is a group of people who believed that they had the ultimate say. That they sat on the throne, they had the right to rule, and even to boss God, and in this case the Son of God, to tell him how it ought to be. And Jesus is not going to bow down to their authority. And one of the things we find, the fill in your blank on your outline we're going to start with today is a personal application is this is that to submit to jesus authority which i hope we all want to do in life to submit to jesus authority you must relinquish your own authority this is this is the heart of discipleship there's only one space in your life for a supreme ruler for a lord on the throne of your heart only one person gets to wear the crown and we are in a constant arm wrestling match with jesus about who has the final say Because in some ways we invite him to come and to rule our life. But when Jesus comes in, 
and begins to lead us in a way that's contrary to what feels good and what looks right in our own human perspective, now we have a problem. Now his authority in our life is in question. How will we react when we encounter Jesus' authority? And if we understand who he is, his character, his competency, his trustworthiness, as he comes to bring about the will of God, the, the good and pleasing will of God in our life. Hopefully we can joyfully submit to Jesus and his authority because we'll see how worthy he is to rule. And in our text today, we'll find that Jesus cannot be outwitted. He cannot be outmatched. He cannot be outgunned by human arguments against his authority. He is trustworthy and he is sovereign to rule in our lives. And so we begin, uh, we'll pick up kind of where we left off in the, in the series here is with Jesus. And you can imagine the scene. He has now come into Jerusalem. He's in the area of Judea. And he and his disciples each night they go outside the camp on the Mount of Olives. Jerusalem is packed with Passover pilgrims. They are there to celebrate one of the most beautiful and joyous occasions in Israel. And that's the celebration of the Passover, God's liberation of the Israelites from slavery. And so Jesus, because there's not a lot of room, maybe he prefers camping. It's camping season here in California. Maybe you like camping as well. You imagine Jesus and his disciples breaking camp in the morning after he has cleared the temple. Just the day before, he has, he's been very busy. He rides into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, takes a look around. He comes in, he clears the temple. And now he and his disciples are coming back in. And you can just imagine, Jesus has kicked the hornet's nest. I mean, he has been attracting all this attention. Sparks are going to fly. Tensions are high. This showdown that's about to go down is going to change the landscape of the, the religious uh, culture here in Jerusalem forever. And so this is where we find Jesus and his disciples walking up to Jerusalem from the Kidron Valley. And so here, uh, I'm going to throw it up on screen for you. You can follow along. Here's what it looks like here. It's a combined account, okay? So we've got Matthew and Mark we're dealing with. And I'm going to read it to you. You can follow along. It goes like this. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. Remember a few weeks ago, Lance told us about the fig tree, about the fig tree as a symbol of the nation of Israel. Jesus goes looking for some, some breakfast bites, some little itty-bitty figs early in season. He finds no fruit, so he curses this tree. And it's a living parable, an illustration of Jesus basically predicting that the Israelites who have borne no fruit, the religious leaders, they're going to be cursed and they're going to be left out if they don't embrace the Messiah because they don't bear fruit in keeping with the kingdom of God. So Peter sees this and remembers. It says, And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. He's just blowing Peter's mind, apparently. <laughs> when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And this is hilarious because how many times have we seen Jesus and his authority in the life of the disciples so far? And still, they're amazed whenever they see his authority at work. I mean, Jesus is at one point in time sleeping in a boat, been awoken by his disciples because they think a storm is going to sink them in the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus stands up and with, with, with a few words, peace be still, boom, commands nature to be quiet. And so the fact that Jesus can, can curse and wither a tree like this is not a, a shocking thing here, but it's establishing early on for us that Jesus has authority over nature, and Jesus' authority is founded upon God. Jesus points them to where his authority comes from. Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, now they're walking up to Mount Zion, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. 
you will receive if you have faith. And that verse, that's a beautiful verse. That gives us a lot of hope and confidence in life. Because why? Because God is a God of authority. And though we never saw Jesus physically say to a mountain, get out of my way. And Jesus is walking along and he goes, man, guys, this is going to be a long journey over that one. Watch this, all right? Get up, mountain, go throw in the sea. We want to walk a straight path, okay? Jesus never physically did that. But we see Jesus all the time doing supernatural, miraculous things. I mean, Jesus moved a mountain of leprosy. For, for those lepers who came to him, you know, and, and of the ten, only one came back to say thank you. Countless times Jesus shows he can command sickness to leave, demons to be gone in his name through the power of God. And so this is not a small thing. Jesus says, if you have faith in God, then nothing is impossible. So, so he's basically saying authority, which comes from God, through faith in God, is ours if we will just simply trust him, if we'll pray and, and have faith. But that for us... It's kind of a, a conundrum, right? Because there's so many circumstances. There's mountains right now in your life that you're facing that are frustrating. And you have prayed and you have asked God that whatever mountain or obstacle would be cast away and thrown into the sea because the sickness you or your family is facing, the obstacles or the pain or the brokenness, it's crippling. It, it, it's so hard. And you're saying, God, I have faith. I trust. What else do I have to do? Do I have to be like the, the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel and cry out to you and cut myself and scream to get your attention? No, God, God sees and knows exactly where you're at right now. So this is not a promise that God is going to move every mountain from your path because God works through adversity. I mean, the, these trials of life help produce perseverance in us as we trust in him. So there's two ways that God works. And the first way, Jesus is saying, yes, through prayer, miraculous, supernatural things can happen. And sometimes that means the mountain in your life being moved completely out of the way, not for your comfort, but for God's glory. That's, that's the first option. But sometimes, and we're going to see it in Jesus' life in a few short days, sometimes God doesn't move the mountain out of your path. Because sometimes God's will is to walk with you up and conquer that mountain, to summit that thing together. Though it's hard, though it's difficult, through his power and his strength, so he can get glory. And so you can glorify him through your perseverance, through your trust, and through the path of obedience. So whether through the power of prayer or through the path of obedience, God is faithful to keep his promises. And nothing that's in front of you is impossible for him to conquer through his power. Praise God. And if God doesn't unroot the mountain in your life right now, he's going to give you strength to walk over that mountain with courage and with faith for his glory. And Jesus is about to do the same thing. Do you know the mountain that Jesus is climbing? It's not just Mount Zion that Jesus is climbing right now. Jesus is walking in the last final days of his earthly ministry towards a brutal execution on the cross. Jesus is not looking forward to this. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. But in the tears and the drops of blood that came from his brow in Gethsemane, we know that this was going to be a brutal and difficult task. And Jesus said, God, if we can move this mountain, let's move it. But not my will, but yours be done. And God gave him strength, and he walked him through it all the way to the cross, all the way to the resurrection, because God had a plan to bring himself glory. And so, so we stay that course. We trust in God. We have this faith in God's authority to rule. We do not doubt. We walk with him according to his will, according to his power. And Jesus is resolute as he walks into Jerusalem. Because he knows God's authority, he will not be shaken in the face of any type of adversity here. And what's about to go down, it looks a lot like the scene from a western. Dads, it's Father's Day. Any, any western fans in the house here? Okay, like uh, the movie Tombstone for me is a, is a classic favorite, okay? 
But there's these, there's these movies and there's these scenes, and they just get stuck in your head. And this is what I think uh, the, uh, the scene looks like as Jesus is walking from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. The landscape of, of Israel looks like this, okay? This is a spaghetti western set, my friends. I mean... <laughs> This is, this is the Judean wilderness here, but every Clint Eastwood movie I've ever seen consists of this, right? It's him riding around on a horse, you know, in dusty, you know, barren wasteland, about to go into enemy-occupied territory where there's a gang, a rival gang, full of punk people who are oppressing and taking advantage of good-hearted people. And he's going to ride in, Clint Eastwood, with his little cigar and his hat and that weird Mexican blanket he wears in every single movie, you know, and that look on his face. He's going to go in, and he's going to bring some justice to bear. And we always think of Jesus as the super nice guy. Man, Jesus, as he's walking into Jerusalem, I'm not thinking he's walking in with a smile on his face today because he knows what he's up against. And as he and his disciples are coming up, I imagine kind of in my mind's eye, very dramatic, okay, here we go, is this cloud of dust, okay? This is a dusty place. And Jesus comes walking out of that cloud of dust with his disciples, and he's kind of sauntering. And he's got his posse, he's got his 12 at his back, right? And they're like, yeah, we're with him. (laughs) This is awesome. And I kind of just imagine, you know, sort of the the tumbleweed blowing across the path, you know, and you can kind of hear the clink of spurs as Jesus walks into the temple. And as everyone looks around, you can just imagine, this tension, right? And you see the guards, and they're kind of shifty-eyed, looking back and forth. They're like, this guy again. And you see the one guy who's like the little, you know, the little messenger dude. And he goes, oh, he's back. And he goes and runs. And he tells the religious leaders, oh, my gosh, Caiaphas, guess who's back? Jesus. He goes, oh, he says, storms are brewing, right? And like, like, there's going to be trouble here, you know? And like, people are running out of the temple. Because the religious leaders, now they're coming as well. And you can just imagine people, let's go, right? They're, they're, they're hiding. They're ready to, to launch an assault on Jesus. And Jesus knows exactly what he's walking into. It's a trap. And these rulers who, who are going to come protecting their authority are going to give Jesus everything they've got. They're going to unload every single barrel that they've, that they've loaded with their clever man-made arguments. And Jesus is going to stand firm. And this is how it plays out. This is Matthew 21, Luke 11, Luke 20. It says, One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel. This is what Jesus does. He's doing his thing. The chief priests and the scribes with the elders of the people come up to him as he's teaching and said to him, Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things and who it is that gave you this authority? They want to know, Jesus, what gives you the right? Who are you to ride into our town and lay down a new law? To cleanse our temple? To come in with the crowd shouting Hosanna? You're blessed to see who comes in the name of the Lord? All this messianic king stuff? Who gives you the authority to come in here and, and to mess up our beautiful, safe, happy little system? And Jesus, knowing full well what that question means, he, he turns the question back on them. Because they're trying to bait him into an argument that's going to lead to his arrest and, and his death. And soon enough, Jesus is going to voluntarily give himself over towards that end, but not this day. And Jesus says that Jesus answered them, I will also ask you a question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. It's the classic Jewish argument. Listen, you answer my question, I'll answer your question. And this is the question Jesus shoots right back at them. He says, now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Yo, wait, John, John. Okay, not John the disciple, John, John the Baptist. Oh, no. And they go, John the Baptist, not him again. 
Because John the Baptist was a thorn in their side. He was that crazy guy. You remember John the Baptist? He comes, he comes basically out of the wilderness. He's not raised up in the religious system. God anoints John the Baptist to come and to prepare the way for the Lord. And John comes dressed as a prophet. He's got these clothes made from camel's hair. He's out in the wild eating locusts and honey. And he's calling people to the Jordan River to be baptized, a baptism of repentance to prepare the way for the Messiah. And Jesus says, he says, okay, you guys tell me, was John's baptism, was John's ministry, was that from God? Or was he just some crazy person? And this is what happens now. He's just turned the tables on them. Now they're in a predicament because the answer to that question is very touchy. And if you look and see what happens, then they huddle up in response to that. And it says, and they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, then he will say, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd. All the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John really was a prophet. So they're between a rock and a hard place. If, if John's from, from, G, from God, if John the Baptist is a prophet, then they miss the bus. And who are they to lead Israel if they're not with and for the purposes of God? So that's a huge problem. But secondarily, if they say John was just a man, and that's how they treated him, they just discounted him in his ministry and they shoot him away to a corner. Eventually, John was arrested and beheaded. And they were happy about that. No more of this messianic fulfillment business. We're still in control. They say, if we say that he was just a dude, then the crowd will be so upset at us, they will drag us out outside the city. They will stone us to death because the people love John the Baptist. And they're looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. So they're basically, they're stuck. If you've ever seen a really powerful person stuck in a, in a question, they're smart enough to know that they can't answer this question well. And so it's amazing what they do. It's embarrassing. It says, they discuss it together, and when they said, it said, Jesus, um, next thing, so they answered Jesus, check this out, we do not know. Wow. Jesus has silenced the religious experts. And Jesus said to them, then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. It sounds kind of mean, right? Jesus is like, if you can't answer my question, I'm not going to answer yours. Nah, you know. But this is, this is not it, because he knows this, this question is not meant to, to bring them closer to God. This question doesn't come from a heart of a follower. It comes from the heart of a critic. And the, the heart of a critic always questions, always challenges, always seeks to disbelieve. And Jesus doesn't deal with critics. He doesn't deal with terrorists. This is not how Jesus rolls. But with, with followers, with those who come open-minded and open-hearted, Jesus is willing and loves to explain and to reveal the kingdom of God because their heart is in the right place. They want to submit to his authority by relinquishing their own. That's how Jesus rolls. That's the heart of discipleship. And so Jesus ultimately is saying to them, hey, listen, guys, I'll take your check, and we'll make that a checkmate, and you can just assume that my authority is coming from God. That's what Jesus is basically saying here. They won't recognize John's authority, and they won't recognize Jesus' authority, but Jesus' miracles and the power with which he teaches and the, the life he embodies here scares them and terrifies them because it comes from a power beyond that of mere man is coming from God. And they are freaked out of their minds. So this is kind of, uh, for us, an opportunity for us to pause because that defensive spirit inside those Pharisees there is something that we find in ourselves a lot of time, right? I mean, the posture of resistance is not a posture of, of submission. I mean, the defensiveness we have sometimes when Jesus comes into our world and steps on our toes. I mean, when Jesus comes in and he does always comes in with love, always comes in with God's purposes in mind. But sometimes we say, Jesus, whoa, well, what are you doing here right now? 
well, I went to church this weekend. Really, you're not supposed to show up again until next Sunday, okay? Like, here you are now coming into my world, and, and who are you to convict me right now about this sin that I've spent my whole life petting and feeding my precious, my sin? Who are you to come now and, and say that the freedom you want to bring is so legit, it's so thorough, that you want to take away the bondage and the slavery that that sin holds over my life? That wasn't our arrangement, Jesus. I mean, the negotiation we had was you have Sundays and maybe Wednesday nights when we take the kids to church. But beyond that, I get a little bit of fun on the side. Jesus says that's not how authority works. When he comes in stepping on our toes, when he comes in instructing us how to live, we say, Jesus, what gives you the right to boss me around? And we're just like those religious experts. We don't want to admit that the authority we live by oftentimes in life is our own authority. And what Jesus is calling us to is a willful, joyful submission. Because a hundred times a week, we are just like these guys. We try to outwit and out-argue and outmaneuver God so we can protect our little kingdom, so we can get our way. And we'll find continually here, Jesus will not be, Jesus will not be overcome by human reasoning. Jesus possesses God's authority, and he exercises it so humbly but so amazingly well. And so since they can't beat Jesus on this authority question flat out, now we start to see they're going to come in from the side with all sorts of other arguments to try to undermine him. And the next angle they take is if we can't beat him on authority, then let Rome beat him. Because Rome has authority over the nation of Israel. They've been occupied by Rome now for, for a good long while. And Rome does not tolerate any dissenters. And so they come to him next. The Pharisees come and they take the next shot at Jesus. Let's read along. Then the Pharisees went... And plotted how to entangle him in his words. So they watched him and sent spies, their disciples, some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians. So you see the cast now we've got here? Spies. We've got the Pharisees who are the experts in the law. Now these guys, the Herodians, they didn't even get along with the Herodians, but they called them in, these supporters of Herod and Herod's kids, who are coming in, and they're supporters of Rome. They say, let's, let's pit him against Rome and see who wins. Because there's no way this backwoods, redneck, Galilean, uneducated hick is going to be able to stand up against Pilate and the Roman government. They're about to be set right. It says, these people came together and they pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something, he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority in the jurisdiction of the governor. He has the final say, the governor does. This is Pilate. And pretty soon you'll find that they can't even put jesus to death without pilate's consent and they got to twist pilate's arm like crazy for it to happen and so so again they come to him with a challenging question they take another shot at jesus and so they ask him teacher we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality but truly teach the way of god and you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances do you catch this? When the spies and these people come in, they go, mm, oh, Jesus, you're so amazing. You're so great. We know that you come from God and, and that you're trustworthy. But they come in and, and they're trying to, to basically uh, to wrap their words in honey so they, that Jesus won't see the hook, so that Jesus will take the bait. They say, then tell us what you think. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar? Should we pay them or should we not? And so it's crazy, these guys come in with this flattery, hoping to, to get Jesus trapped in this question. Taxes. Death and taxes were a certainty, even in the first century, okay? No one has ever liked taxes, ever, all right? And these people, they were just, they were just writhing under the audacity, the injustice of being taxed by these Roman overlords. And they say, Jesus, is it biblical? We're God's people. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar? 
I mean, he's this pagan overlord. I mean, isn't it right then, if we're people of God, that we would reject those taxes? And they're baiting Jesus to put him between God and Caesar. And Jesus, again, he sees through their argument. And it says, Jesus, aware of their malice, knowing their hypocrisy, perceived their craftiness and said to them, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. One thing that's amazing about Jesus throughout Scripture, which is, which is encouraging but also terrifying, is that Jesus always sees the heart. Jesus always can see right through whatever someone's saying with their words, and he can see the condition of their heart. And Jesus sees these guys being hypocrites. They're smiling with their faces, but in their heart they're plotting. And for you and I today, Jesus, regardless of what we say to him when we come to him with bribery or with fancy words, he knows our hearts. That's the discernment he has through the Holy Spirit. And he knows exactly where we stand. And that should give us hope that we can come to him authentically because he already knows who we are and the concerns of our heart. But for these guys, he is ticked. <laughs> I mean, he is not going to be easily duped by these, these, these hypocrites. And so he tells them, okay, guys, listen. You guys want an object lesson? No problem. I'm Jesus. I'm the master teacher, okay? Someone bring me a denarius, okay? It's time for show and tell. And so all of a sudden they go, wait, uh, you're supposed to answer our question. Oh, man. And so they go digging through their pockets and their purses. And so they find, and sure enough, someone pulls out, they've got a coin. And, and they go, okay, hey, Jesus, here's a, here's a denarius. Here's one right here. And this is what it would have looked like, the denarius that they showed Jesus. And it's, denarius is, is a silver coin, and it was used... Uh, throughout the Roman Empire, uh, it was uh, a day's wage, and it was used to pay a very common, very hated tax called the poll tax. It's basically a headcount tax. They would do a census to figure out how many people are in the nation. Now I'm going to charge each of you a denarius because we got to pay the bills. I mean, occupation ain't cheap. We're laying these roads. We're keeping the peace. We're going to need a denarius from each of you because this land is our land, not your land. And we need you all to chip in. And for those Jews, that was called God's holy promised land. For someone to come in and say, this is my land, I'll take taxes to, to support you here, for them was more than they could bear. And the crazy thing is, Jesus says, okay, bring me a denarius, and whose image is on this coin? And when you look at the coin, you see right there on the left, it has a, it has a figurehead on it. And every time a new emperor would take over in the Roman Empire, he would basically mint a whole new set of coins as an advertisement, a business card for the entire empire. Hello! I am Tiberius. I am Caesar. This is how I roll. I am large and I am in charge. And the inscription around this coin says a lot about how Caesar thought about himself. And this, this text says around the, the side, if you kind of can barely make it out, it's in Latin, okay? This is the high imperial speech. Greek was the, the language of the day in conversation, but Latin was how they translated and, and how they communicated these important uh, empirical things. And so it says... Uh, Tiberius Caesar, it says on the left-hand coin. It says, Divi Augusti Filius Augustus, which we all know in Latin says, <laughs> Tiberius Caesar, the son of the divine Augustus, the Augustus. So Caesar Augustus, you've heard that before, okay? That term Augustus is a term that was applied to uh, Octavian. This is the predecessor for, uh, for Tiberius here. And that term came with an understanding of divinity, because Octavian, called Augustus, was awarded the status of God. Divine status was awarded to him after his death. And now Tiberius has the audacity, in living breath, to mint on a coin, I'm Tiberius, I'm the son of the divine Augustus, I'm Caesar, and I am Augustus. I am divine. He's claiming the right of divine 
emperorhood. He's saying, I'm God. I'm a God. And that doesn't come from, the authority doesn't come from God Almighty, okay? It's not like King Henry VIII, you know, this divine right to rule. This is from the pantheon of pagan gods. He's saying, I am now among them, and I am supreme to rule. And on the little coin on the right, on the back side of it, it says Pontifex Maximus, high priest. And it's got seated there the goddess Pax. Pax, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. This is the goddess of peace. And he's saying, I am the intermediary of this divine peace. It's depending on me. It's revolving around me. Recognize my authority, my power to rule over you. (laughs) So the irony here, you can see, Jesus talks to religious leaders in the midst of the temple. And he says, show me a denarius. This argument's about Caesar. What's to give to Caesar? They pull out a coin with what? A graven image of a little man enthroned in Rome who claims to be God in the temple of God. And so this is, this is a battle of authority here. In the temple of God, who has authority? This idolatrous little king? Or does God have authority? And Jesus answers them, this beautiful answer. And he says to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They say Caesar's. And Jesus says to them these famous words, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Have you heard that before? Nod your head if you've heard that before, right? This is a very quoted scripture, okay? People are familiar with this. And that word render means give back. It literally means give back to Caesar. If Caesar gave you that, if he put his image and his likeness on that, then give it back to him. It's his anyway. Okay? Who cares if Caesar gives you his coins and he wants them back again? If it's in his jurisdiction, then fine, give it back to him. But here's what Jesus is more concerned about. Whose image and likeness does he see on the faces of the people around him? Whose image and likeness were we created in? We're created in the image of God. Humankind bears God's image. And way more than whose face is on a coin, God looks around him at living, breathing people who are made in God's image. And he says, listen, guys, here's the more important thing. You give back to God the things that are God's. What things bear his image? You do. So what do you do? You give back to God your life. You give back to God your all. Because God is not concerned about the coins in your pocket. He's concerned about your heart. And the the, the thing you were created for, a relationship with him. And so Jesus points to the much higher priority system here. And and this question then, should we give Caesar his money? Yes, give Caesar his money. And should we give God what? We should give God worship. We should give God acclaim. We should give God the rightful place to rule in our lives. Why? Because that's what God, that's what God desires from his people here. And their question is flawed at the heart because they're saying, hey, this little coin with Caesar's face on it, do we have to give it back to him? Or can we keep it for ourselves? Because the more of these I can have in my pocket, the more secure in my authority I'm going to be. And Jesus says, you guys, your priority is so wrong. You're concerned about accumulation of riches. And what God's concerned about is your trust in him, your worship of him. And so we find this precedent throughout scripture. When it comes to government, God is not anti-government. In as much as government is not in opposition to his expressed will and truth, he says support government. He says, go along with things. He says, the law and, and the, the keeping of civilization is for your good. I mean, I want, I want to know that when I flush my toilet, it's going to go wherever it goes, okay? I'll pay some taxes for that. Sure, I want the roads around my house to be smooth and work. There's some expenses that come along with the law of the land, right? But, but he says, it, as, as much as it's up to you, and the instructions throughout the New Testament is, live at peace, live quiet lives, work hard. Submit to the government, because the government is used by God to accomplish his purposes. But when government gets crossways with the will of God, we see this throughout Scripture as well, right? Remember Daniel in the lion's den? Remember those three guys with the crazy names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They get carried away into captivity, and they're told, 
disobey God. The government tells them, forget God, worship me. And they know that their responsibility is first to be citizens of heaven. And so they deny that civil disobedience in that situation is to say, no, we will worship God Almighty because we must obey God rather than men. The, the, Peter and the apostles are about to say that before the, these religious leaders in about a couple months. They're going to say, shut up about Jesus. Be quiet about him. And they say, listen, nice of you to say that. But you judge for yourself whether it's right for us to obey you or to obey God. Because our responsibility as conscientious citizens of the kingdom of God is to put him first, his sovereignty above all things. So Jesus, he points out the irony of their question. And he shows them how embarrassing it is that their allegiance isn't the wrong place. And ultimately his question leaves them marveling. It says, and they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. So they, their plan backfired. It didn't work. But marveling at his, at his answer, they became silent and they left him and they went away. So you go, whew, man, that was great. Good showdown. Nope, <laughs> not done yet. Why? Because there are other people waiting in the wings to take their shot at Jesus. Cue the Sadducees. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of the Sadducees before in, in, in children's church. We sing this little song about, I don't want to be a Sadducee because the Sadducees are sad, you see. <laughs> Something about the resurrection. And it's like, I never got it as a kid, okay? But all I remember is the Sadducees are sad, all right? So that's still going to hold true, and here's why, okay? So the Sadducees, they're these people. They're wealthy. They're powerful, but they're a minority. They accept only, basically, conservatively, the first five books of the Bible— the books of Moses, Moses, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They say, that's where we're going to put our faith right here. You Pharisees and all your extra laws and all the prophets and all these things that you and your smart people have put together in the Talmud, all your traditions, we're not going to take any of that stuff here. We're going to only look at the very beginning at the law. Well, the Sadducees here are going to come and bring Jesus an argument here. And this is really an argument based on their own craftiness. They're just wanting to flex their power and their authority with Jesus. And it says that same day, cue the other crowd. The Sadducees come riding in, right? There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And if you want to pick a bone with Jesus, this is not the topic to pick it about, right? I mean, in about a week, Jesus is about to blow the stone away from the tomb because death could not hold him. And so this is a bad day to come picking the resurrection fight with Jesus. It says that they believed uh, that there was no resurrection. They didn't believe in a bodily resurrection from the dead. That's why they're sad, you see. Okay, see, that's where the kid's song comes in. And so, um, so because they don't believe in a bodily resurrection, they come and they're going to argue with Jesus, this very crafty hypothetical question, to embarrass and discredit Jesus. And it's basically a spin on, have you, guys heard, have you heard of Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, the musical? Okay, so we just warmed a lot of hearts in the room. That was amazing. So the peace, some people went, yeah, I know that one. Okay, this is a, not a warming story, okay? This is uh, one bride for seven brothers, and all the brothers die. Okay, so here's how that story goes. It says, the same day these Sadducees come to him, and they say to him, Teacher, Moses wrote for us, if a man dies having no children, okay, so he doesn't get to celebrate Father's Day, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. You go, does that say what I think it says? Yes, it does, okay? Deuteronomy 25, it's called the Leverite Marriage Law. And basically, offspring are so important, the bloodline carrying on is so important that God inserted into his law that, it, that if a man dies without kids, then his widow would, would rightfully then be passed along to his brother so that his brother could have kids with this widow 
on behalf of his brother to carry on the bloodline, and the widow then would not be abandoned because she would have kids to support her, to watch over her, okay? Thank God that he has fulfilled the law, not abolished it, and that this is not the case today, right? Because this could create a lot of complexity in life. But they say that could create a lot of problems in death because what happens then if we play this out, Jesus, this hypothetical? They say, okay, Jesus, he says, um, now there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her, and likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection of the seven, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. You go, wait a second. Okay. So she married the first guy, and he died, and then she's passed along, you know. And if, if I'm brother number seven, and I see this pattern, I'm going to go, you keep her. Okay? So... <laughs> This has not worked out so great for my brothers. I don't think that I'm going to agree with this arrangement, okay? I'll take the shame from the elders of the city, but I'm not going to marry this black widow lady, right? It's like the scene in the haunted mansion where the lady in the wedding dress has like killed all her husbands or whatever. So it's like, who knows what the circumstance is, is about here, but they go, Jesus, this is going to be way too hard for God to untangle. And all these people get to heaven. Who is this woman going to belong to? Resurrection doesn't make any sense. And according to their human argument, they could, they could try to make a case for this, but Jesus says, man... How wrong, how wrong can you guys be? He says to them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. That is a huge slap in the face to these guys. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. That's how things work in the world today. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Good Jesus, that was a very complicated explanation. How does that help us here? Well, Jesus says, first of all, the authority and the human wisdom you're bringing to bear in the situation is really a moot point. God doesn't care about your clever argument. Let's go to what the Word of God says. And Jesus illuminates here a little bit of what the life to come will look like. I wish we had time to, to, to tell about the glories and the joys of heaven. We have so many questions about what, what will it be like in that day. My wife and I sit around sometimes and we talk about that. And one of our biggest concerns is, will we be married in heaven or not? Will he at least let us share like the mansion? You know, like I'm kind of attached to my wife. You know, I wouldn't mind seeing her for eternity. I hope your marriage is like that as well, okay? So if you're hoping to get rid of your wife for eternity, then you need some counseling and we have it down the street at Soul Care, okay? So... But here's the deal is that we, we, we hopefully enjoy the richness of relationship that God has set up on this earth. But what basically Jesus is saying is that when we come into the kingdom of God, then the physical relationship between man and woman, that joint union, that picture of intimacy, that marriage between a man and a woman committed together for life, and the, the joy of sexual intimacy and of procreation, of filling the world, you know, subduing it, all these things will have played their course out by the kingdom age by the time we come to heaven why because we're eternal procreation is not needed anymore and there's a joy and an intimacy so far beyond sexual intimacy that will happen when we're with god face to face in heaven no more crying no more pain no more tears no more shame we will know god and be known and the richness and the fellowship of community and the saints of god is going to be so beautiful so jesus says you guys are tripping says, marriage is not going to be a concern in heaven he basically says, if any of you guys have a problem with the upgrades I'm planning in heaven, there will be a complaint box at the pearly gates, and you can file a complaint. But the person who gets to heaven and says, ah, oh, Jesus, what? Streets of gold? I was hoping for streets of platinum. Gold is so out, right? 
What is, what is that? We have these preferences. We have, we have these ideas. Where we, well, God, I would prefer the heaven to be like this. Let's stop for a second. If God is holy and just and he's perfectly good, is anything in heaven going to disappoint? Is there any part of our heavenly experience that, that we're going to look at and go, God, man, you really missed the mark here? Because all this eternal glory and all this worship forevermore and you know, the creativity, the joy, the beauty of eternity with you in heaven is really lacking. It's missing the mark. That is not going to happen. And we can trust that, that God's authority is going to sort everything out. And so Jesus is pointing them not just to the fact that God has this figured out. The resurrection is a certainty, and God has already worked out the details. But he's pointing to the fact that this is not really the argument here. The authority to say, this is how it's probably going to be, Jesus. This is how we see it, right? This is the authority we have to, to yield in our human perspective. Jesus, he kiboshes that, and he points them to one source of authority, to, to find and draw the truth, the scriptures, the word of God. If at any time we're crossways, we're, we're confused, where do we go to find the truth for how to live life? We go to the authority of the word of God. Jesus sets for us that example. And Jesus gives them from the book of Moses. He says, you guys only believe what Moses said? Fine, let's go back and see what Moses says about this. He goes back and he fires at them from the book of Moses. He says, as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses? That's, this is a huge insult again. Of course they've read this. Of course they have a thousand times. So he says, don't you know the scriptures? What was said to you by God in the passage about the, the bush? Remember Moses in the burning bush when God appears to him? And he reveals his identity. It says how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. It says he is the God of not just the dead, but of the living. For all live to him. You are quite wrong. God's saying, I'm not, I'm not the God of a bunch of dead people. I am the living God of these people, the saints who have gone before, and they're with me. Remember Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration? Jesus, he's unveiled in all his glory. Who shows up to hang out on the Mount of Transfiguration? And they're going to play a quick nine holes of golf, right, on top of the Transfiguration. It's Elijah and Moses, these, these super figures here. They're alive and well in the kingdom of God. The saints have a promise. If you know God, if you call upon Christ as Savior, your eternity is secure in heaven, and the dead will rise. We will be with him. And the full testimony of Scripture and the Holy Spirit help us see the reality of these things. And so when these two things collide, then, the opinion of man and Scripture, even these people have to say, Jesus, that was a pretty good answer. It says, then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. For they no longer dared to ask him any question. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Dang, Jesus just threw down. And like, that's amazing. And so you think, okay, now we're done, right? Now, now, surely they've won. Nope, there's one last guy. The quick draw, dead eye, showdown guy is going to come and to take one last shot of Jesus. And the Pharisees, when they heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of the scribes, okay, these are the experts, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. He says, teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest, the most important of all. So there's hundreds of commandments, right? Thousands of peripherals the Pharisees have thrown in. He's trying to catch them. Jesus, in your, in your great opinion, which one is the most important of all? Looking for one last chance to trap him. And Jesus said to him, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the first and great commandment. Everyone would have stood back at that point in time and gone, wow, 
golf clap, okay? He answered well. Why? Because that verse that Jesus just told them, it's the equivalent of John 3.16 for us today. It's the most well-known verse in the nation of Israel. It's called the Shema, and that's the Hebrew word for hear, and it comes from Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel. This is how we roll. The Lord our God is one, not many. There's one God over Israel, and here's how we follow him. We love him with everything we have, with all of our mind, with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength. And so when they hear this, this is, this is joyful for them because if you ever heard of those phylacteries, it's like the first century WWJD bracelets. Have you guys heard of those before? Okay. It's a, it's a little box that they'd write on a scroll this verse and they'd roll it up and they'd put it in these boxes. They would even wear them on their foreheads. And this for them was an identification of their identity. And it's a sign for them. We are under the authority of God. And so Jesus says that is the first and greatest commandment. And he throws in a bonus. He says the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these, and on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. He says, you want to know what it all boils down to? I want to know what it all boils down to in this life, don't you? It's very simply this. It's like we said in the Father's Day video. There's nothing greater in this life than knowing God and loving those whom God has put before us, like Jesus would love them. That's the sum of all the law and the commandments is a life lived for God. If we truly understand God's authority, we'll, we'll pursue him with all we have and we'll see ourselves as agents of love to bless and to encourage the world around us to come to know and worship our great God. And that, that quotation of Leviticus 19.18 makes these people happy. They say, man, you nailed it, Jesus. Bullseye. It says, the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. So this guy who's sent to, to demolish Jesus, he comes back and says, Jesus, wow, I, I give you a high five. You totally nailed that. And when Jesus saw that he had answered him wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Can you imagine the Pharisees, as this guy walks back into the huddle, they go, dude, what the heck? You, you were there to blow him away. What were you doing? You totally missed the mark. He's like, what? He answered rightly. What am I supposed to do here? This guy's legit. We can't question his authority. He can't answer wrongly. And many of the Pharisees, we know, came to believe in Jesus. Why? Because Nicodemus, who comes to him in the secret of the night, comes and whispers about the kingdom of God. Jesus answers his question. Joseph of Arimathea, he's the guy who's going to, in a few days, he's going to be responsible for coming to take down the body of Jesus off the cross to ensure that it's buried. Even these guys recognized, when they really looked into God's scripture, this guy carries God's authority. And Jesus now, for one last final shot, turns to them and says, this is what you need to know about who I am and what my purposes are. He takes a shot at them about this question of authority. He says to them, as Jesus taught in the temple, then he says, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? And this argument here is an age-old argument because they're, they're basically understanding that the Messiah is going to be the son of David, King David. He's going to come from that line. He's going to come with that power and authority. He's going to conquer Rome and kick them out. But Jesus throws a wrench in their understanding of authority. And on Father's Day, it's an encouragement for you fathers because in Jewish culture, and we're Gentiles mostly today, but in Jewish culture, the father always has authority over the son. Amen, dads? Amen, right? You get to pick wherever you want to go for lunch today, all right? Okay, whatever you want. The father has authority over the son. And so in this circumstance, though, Jesus is saying, how then does David say, talking about his coming son, the Messiah, how does he then call his son Lord? 
Adonai. That's a divine term. What is David doing here? Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in Psalm 110, a messianic psalm, this is what Jesus says. How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? For David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And they go, whoa. (laughs) If what you're saying is what we think you're saying, then Jesus is making a seriously bold claim. He's saying that the Messiah is not just a guy who's coming to rule politically. The Messiah is one whom God has ordained with his power and invited to sit at his right hand. And that's not a place for mere mortals. That means the Messiah must be fully God and fully man. This is Jesus. Jesus is saying, look, behold, I've come with the authority of God, and we find that he's, he's basically saying God's authority in, in me, working through me, is going to glorify me. We find that in Philippians. You guys remember that part in Philippians chapter 2 where he talks about how Jesus came, and, and our responsibility is to have the mind of Christ. Remember, Jesus came, and he did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but he emptied himself. And he took on the likeness of a man, and he came in the flesh. And in the flesh, he came as a servant. And becoming obedient unto death, Jesus then dies for sin. And it says that God then exalted Jesus to the highest place, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow on heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is Jesus. He's saying, This is my authority. This is what I come to bring to you. I'm going to come as a servant to die right now. But if you miss, in in this humble rabbi facade, the greater picture of what God is doing here, you'll have an opportunity in a few short days. And we, on this side of the cross, on this side of the resurrection, we can see clearly Jesus has conquered sin and death. Jesus is victorious over the grave. Jesus comes, uh, comes representing the goodness and the glory of God, showing us the way, the truth, and the life. And you and I have an opportunity and even a responsibility to recognize that today. And to submit to Jesus' authority, we have to agree to relinquish our own. And that begins right now. The path of discipleship is not a one-time act to publicly declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's a daily decision to pick up your cross, to deny yourself, to die, and follow Jesus. And in that death to self, we find a glorious life as Jesus flows through his spirit, love and healing and power for us to walk God's path, to please him each day, to find glorious joy in his presence as we walk that path of obedience with him. And so today, my challenge for you is this. Admit your weakness and submit to God's authority. Admitting weakness is our biggest struggle when it comes to authority. We have to say, I need help. I need a savior. And and as we take and admit that we can't run the world perfectly ourselves, and as we submit to God, that which is his, our lives, because we're made in his image, and he's called us and claimed us and bought us with a price so far beyond what we could do for ourselves, the blood of Jesus, we have the opportunity to walk into a joyful and daily submission to God, to choose his way every day. And my encouragement for you as you walk out these doors today is, is to look at your life, and is there any place in your life that Jesus is inviting you to surrender to him? Is there any piece of your life that is not submitted fully to his lordship? And if so, may God work with you in that this week because there is joy to be found in submitting to Jesus our Savior. Let me pray for you.
God, as we walk out these doors, God, we don't want to just go and have uh, a great lunch or a fantastic barbecue, Father. We want to go uh, representing Jesus Christ. God, would the words of our lips, God, would the attitudes of our heart, would our actions uh, reflect that we are under authority, that we're under your authority, that we trust you, that we love you, and it's our, it's our joyful privilege to obey you, God. Would you, through your Holy Spirit, lead us and guide us, God, on that easy path, God. Your yoke is easy, your burden is light when we trust in you and we call on your authority, and we long to live that life of discipleship with you, Father. So be glorified, God, in the showdown of our hearts, God, would you win time after time after time so you could be glorified through us and we could spend eternity with you, Father, because we have a knowledge of Jesus Christ as our master, as our savior, as our friend. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.